My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can go to iTunes and write a brief review for the show. Or number two is you can simply go to interviewthefuture.com and become a patron. My guest today is Nicholas Badminton. Nick is the chief futurist at futurist.com. He has worked with over 300 organizations in foresight, strategy, and disruption, including NASA, the United Nations, Google, Microsoft, Intel, Rolls-Royce, and many others. Nick is a friend of mine, and in addition to our common interest in the future, we share a few other passions, such as cycling and certain types of music and books. Now, speaking of books, however, Badminton's new book, Facing Our Futures, this fantastic book, Facing Our Futures is currently a hot new release on Amazon, so I highly recommend you guys go and check it out, because during our conversations today, we're going to talk about the, the present, the future, the big trends in general, but also about many of the lessons and the tools that Nick has for us in his fantastic new book, Facing Our Futures. So, welcome to Singularity FM, Nick. It's a real pleasure to be here. In fact, I'm sort of pinching myself. I've been watching you and uh, the interviews you've been doing over the years, Nick. So uh, this is a real pleasure for me to be here. And it's all, it's always good to chat chat with you. Fantastic. Yeah, last time we were chatting, we were bicycling actually along the lakeshore, which was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. This time is kind of on the record. So Nick, yeah. if you had to introduce yourself in one sentence to our viewers and listeners, for people who may have never heard of you before, who is Nicholas Badminton in one sentence? Um, I'm a recovering management consultant, advertising executive. I'm a person that's lived in data for over 25 years, and I've been working in futures and future, futures design, futures exploration, and creative intent to really try and work out what's coming next for the last 10 or so years. Uh, you know, I can add to that I'm a biohacker. I've been playing around with lots of different ideas of, of spec futures for a long time, running events and doing some really cool stuff. And you, you came to speak at the last Dark Futures event in Toronto as well. So, you know, there's lots of things I like to play with. I know that's longer than a sentence, but sometimes I've got too much to say. <laughs> well, I'm going to shorten it up in a sentence and I'm going to use sure. your own words, actually, from page 15 yeah. in your own book. Because I actually like it and I think it actually captures you well. Uh, so you say, today, I'm a dreamer, futurist, a foresight practitioner, and a hope engineer. I really like that, a hope engineer. Another term yeah. I interlace with futurist. So what is a futurist, Nick? I mean... <laughs> A futurist is, is someone that kind of urges the world to be curious about what comes next, you know, shifting that mindset from what is, you know, looking at what's happening today to what if, what might be, you know, in 10, 20, 30, 50 plus years. A, a futurist can look at societal and cultural trends. They can look at technological trends. They can look at the big macro uh, systems of the world, of the industrial complex that we're stuck in. They can look at the minutiae within organizations and within technical systems as well. 
like I said, we're hope engineers. We're trying to wake people up from their poverty of imagination to really ignite, you know, some some attempt at daydreaming about what might come next. Because imagination and creativity is is a lost skill within the context of organizations and governmental planning. Wow, imagination, creativity. And you talk about, maybe now I should ask you, because I, I like how you put it in your book in one place, when you're talking about the present poverty of our imagination. Tell me more about yeah. that. You know, th this is something I, I first heard from my friend Lo Stamhoff, who's uh, the chair of futures over at UNESCO. So we, we're born as kids, and when we're when we're going through childhood, we, we've got an abundance of imagination. We we play together, we create all sorts of scenarios. You know, when when I was a kid, we you know played Star Wars or we played Asterix or whatever. We 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 imagined ourselves as these characters. You know, that hill over there wasn't just a hill; it was a fort or it was something that we had to play on. And then when you get to sort of adulthood, we sort of get burdened with you know taxes and life and having kids and paying the rent and a whole bunch of different things and suddenly everything gets very serious and we don't wake up you know imagining you know how life could be different or asking what if and and that sort of led us to this collective imagine uh, imagination sort of deficit in a way it just means that within organizational context we think inside the box we operate inside the box and whenever we kind of come up with a crazy idea you know, we, we're kind of told to shut up and, and move forward and, and, and stick to the plan, right? So what I try and do in my futures work is try and really sort of blow the doors off of all of that and say, okay, here's lots to see and, and lots to consider about how the world is changing. What if the world was different for your organization? Like fundamentally, if you don't change, you end up in stasis. And if you end up in stasis, you end up in a long, slow decline to obsolescence and eventual death. And that's taken from, from an earnings call that, that Jeff Bezos had as well, right? So imagination is hugely important to, to really you know, dial that up. And I think as futurists, whether it's a keynote or a workshop or writing or, or you know doing podcasts, it, it's to invite people to to really wake up and say, okay, let's be curious, let's have fun, you know, let's just let's not discount anything and let's try and imagine how life can be different. Yeah, and I I really love that because you are also saying somewhere in your book that imagination is a superpower, and I remember when I was a kid, as you were saying. Uh, you know, the, the kitchen chair could suddenly become the Millennium Falcon or something like right. that. And and nothing, nothing was impossible, really. And then you become adult and one day everything suddenly becomes impossible and nothing is really possible, only like the harsh reality or something like that. And And so in that case, in that sense, I totally love that you're saying in your book that imagination is a superpower because it allows you to break through kind of the prison of your own mind. And and unfortunately, that's that's something that, you know, I struggle with on a daily basis to get out of my own kind of established ways of thinking. And it's, it's, yeah. it's a really hard thing to develop and to sustain. Yeah, it's interesting. You said, you know, last year when we went cycling and I had all sorts of punctures, problems and whatever, <laughs> and you helped me with that. Um, it, it's interesting. I re always remember a, a little story about a doctor, you know, a very, very sort of wizened, you know, surgeon expert, you know, global global knowledge around surgery. I can't remember which, which discipline exactly. And, you know, every day he rides 17 minutes to work. 
And in this very sort of grown up interview, it's like, oh, you know, you, you, you turned up, you cycled to the interview. Like, like they were surprised. He goes, when I cycle, I'm seven, year old, I'm seven years old again. And I look at the world completely differently. And it makes me realize that I'm human and that there's fun in the world. And just even that or doing yoga or painting or, I don't know, just, just, just wandering in nature or whatever, tries to really sort of reignite some of that passion that we had when we were a kid and that wonder. You know, look, when do we ever like look back, look at, the, look at the clouds and wonder what happens? I mean, maybe this is why psychedelics have come into modern society again to try and liberate people from depression or try and blow people's minds wide open to rethink uh, you know, the design of technologies or society as a whole, right? We're just trying to, to work out how to reignite that. And I, I, I applaud that in people, but there's so many people, in, in fact, the majority of the populace, that just don't just don't look up and even consider you know what's happening out in the wider world and to take a deep breath and realize that that's a really important part of the day yeah it's a funny story i think albert einstein came up with his theory of relativity while riding on his bicycle uh and it right. was kind of in the middle of the, the night or or after dark anyway and he was looking at his headlight as he was biking uh, along his path somewhere in Switzerland and was thinking, what would it be like if instead of a bicycle, he was riding on a beam of light? And how would right. the speed of light of coming from his headlight compare to the speed that he's riding his bicycle at? And what would the time differential be and how one is relative to the other and all those incredible things? So I totally uh, kind of congratulate you on those 50 rules, I think, or lessons that you learned for your 50th birthday, which, by the way, happy birthday. You had a, a big anniversary Thank recently. You. And I think... Yeah, last year, yeah. I forget if it was number 21 or which one was it, but one of them was ride a bicycle. That's right. Like, go outside, play. I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old son. Play with your son. It, it's, it's one of the most liberating experiences now that he's kind of, like, chatting and kind of being mayhem. It, it, it's one of the most liberating experiences that's just really fulfilling something that I've been missing, not only in my life, but my work as well, a perspective, but also a simplicity of thought and, and a sort of that, that childhood exuberance and, and, and innocence. And I, I think that that goes alongside imagination, like exuberance, innocent passion, just just not having a care in the world. And I think that we have to be better at um, operating like that as a whole, you know, whether we're in organizations or whether we're in governments or whether we're just going about our daily lives. Yeah, I don't know if it was Einstein, but reputedly it was him who said that imagination is more important than intelligence. Uh, I don't know right. if that's an accurate uh, credit to him or not, but I think there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it, and especially when it comes to the field of futurism, which you right. talk a lot about in your book here. So let's yeah. let's go back on topic here a little bit, and let me ask you this kind yeah. of a still um, uh, kind of a different question. Is there a difference between a futurist and futurism and foresight and foresight professional? <laughs> so uh, futurism is, is the discipline some call it futurology uh, some call it futures design or I, I call it a mix of 
everything. In fact, I sort of switch and chop and change in the book. Apologies for people that are sort of getting confused by that. But generally, I, I say futures design and foresight. Uh, futurism is the discipline or futurology is the discipline. Uh, you know, a, a futurist is just someone that undertakes that work. And, and we see a broad perspective of different flavors of futurists in the world you know pop futurists that sort of you know they're very sort of wide perspective and not very deep in knowledge but kind of imagine that you know there's exponential change and we see you know, people like peter diamandis or, or whatever out there um and it's slightly cringy and but it's very inspirational for people that are just beginning the game and then you've got uh, really deep thinkers and, and people like ray kurzweil and whatever that have got very deep in terms of thinking but the very sort of structural science-based you know prediction-based sort of uh, futures and, and futures thinking and, and and futurists as well i try and just be a more sort of creative discipline in the middle of everything to try and learn about signals and speculate on trends and try and write and try and get people excited try and tell stories about things happening today and how they're likely to have a bearing on our futures to work with people to try and create complex ideas around the interplay you know lots of venn diagrams of the interplay of like three different signals that become different trends and got different effects and a, a number of different things as well and sometimes my approach is more simplistic than maybe academic futurists which sort of go down the the the, the rabbit hole of you know more complex ideas of multiple states of futures uh, mo multiple possibilities and plausible futures preposterous futures whatever so I, I try and sort of swim in the sea with everyone right i sort of I, I would say that i started off as a bit more like pop futurist uh, but that very quickly faded about eight years ago into something a little bit more serious now when i work with clients it's sort of strategy but straddling into into foresight and that foresight and the exploration we do there trying to be useful back to the strategic planning today so i guess you don't differentiate between futurist and foresight uh professionals the way that john smart does uh in his book introduction to foresight and by the way john for john smart is uh probably one of the most kind of formal foresight professionals he works for the u.s navy most of the time my understanding is right uh, or the department of navy of the united states and uh he talks about the difference being in his view anyway that futurists are a lot more story centered and story oriented whereas foresight professionals are a lot more fact based and maybe from there, foresight professionals are a lot more quantitative oriented. They do quantitative analysis, whereas uh, right. futurists are a lot more qualitative uh, and are more focused on kind of telling stories, painting those pictures, whereas uh, the foresight professionals are a lot more about the specifics and especially the closer future, maybe. So yeah, and it, and and this is the idea of forecasting versus foresight, you know, and super forecasting, which is another flavor. I'll be honest. So I run a uh, I run a Discord for futurists around the world, and it's got some of the the, the greatest thinkers um, in there that that I used to be connected to on, on Twitter, and then we all sort of had a mass exodus. And uh, we, we're in this forum, and and we have this conversation a lot about quantitative and and qualitative. Um, like foresight and futures and no one can really agree but there, there seems to be a consensus that 
it is about you know the signal scanning but it's very much a creative art so i i think that if you come from say quite a formal you know forecasting background and it's something you know with military maybe it's navy maybe it's the army maybe it's in uh, r and d it can, it can kind of feel like foresight is more quantitative and it's more about you know distinct signals combinations you know nearer futures 5 to 15 years uh, but I, I, I generally don't uh, take things as seriously. And maybe that irks some people. I think the book might irk some people because I, I sort of I sort of swim in the waters and just try and find my own way so that I can explain it to clients in a way that they can understand it. Because I've, I've seen foresight professionals in a room with CEOs and, you know, just look at the futures cone. There's like, there's like six different flavors of, of, of futures. It's just so complicated that we have to kind of, I think, simplify it down and and just say, hey, let's just like sit up, pay attention, get creative and play with this a little bit more. And that's why in my book, I don't really go into too many frameworks. I sort of talk talk about the things that I kind of find interesting from like Jim Data at University of Hawaii, Manoa, the things that I find from Joseph Voros and, and what came before him with, you know, the futures comb, but taking ideas of preposterous futures and whatever. I'm sort of very particular because I found that they've resonated with executives more than anything else. Yeah. So so for the purposes of our conversation here today. Uh, I just wanted to get this out of the way that basically a futurist and a foresight professional, you kind of use as synonyms. Um, so so they're yeah. not in any way uh, distinct or opposite uh, the way, for example, John Smart and others say, and that's your flavor. Uh, and, and that's perfectly okay, because as you see, as you say, yeah. there's a big debate about that there. But let me ask you yeah, this for then. Sure. What's the biggest misconception about futurism in your view? <laughs> when I'm out and I meet people, I'm out at dinner and I know that I'm going to be introduced with people, um, you know, by friends, I, I just say that I'm a marketing professional and that avoids a whole bunch of conversations. But when I do say that, oh, I'm a futurist, it always starts with like, oh, so uh, what about predictions? What do you predict for this? What do you predict for that? What do you predict for, you know, a number of different things? And And the fact is we don't do any kind of predictions. Earlier in my career, I, you know, I'd, I'd predict things that would happen within three years about mobile computing or whatever, horribly wrong. And you sort of learn these lessons and you sort of you know, lick your wounds and pick yourself up and then realize that, you know, futures work is about speculation. And I, I use the term what if and I, I, I use the term from what is to what if, which I lifted from Rob Hopkins, fantastic book of the same name, which talks about creativity and activism. To, to really say that, okay, this is, this is about us being curious and stepping up and, and, and speculating on what comes next. It also means that when you're at a conference, you're not going to have someone standing up at question time and saying, hey, everything you just said is absolutely incorrect. All your predictions are wrong. Because um, that's actually a very easy thing to say. If someone says, you know, I don't believe what you just said, you can say, yeah, but what if the world changes? And I also say to people, it's like, just add the word yet to the end of every sentence that you uh, that you just said. And it's like, oh, well, this you know, the full automation of, of farming isn't is definitely not going to happen yet. It just it, it, it really pacifies the conversation and opens it up. And um, it, it was about three or four years ago that I started to change the way that I spoke about futures because you'd hit these very hard-nosed people that just didn't believe what was being said. And it was very like prescriptive 
this is going to change and that's going to change. Welcome to the future. Goodbye. And it would leave people without a route to have a conversation, whereas saying, you know, what if and and and, and speculating and, and sort of creating, you know, fun, imaginative scenarios. Yeah, I have to say. We're just playing with ideas. Uh, yeah, I have to say, I, I, I like your flavor uh, a lot, uh, where you actually make the distinction between forecasting and futurism. And and so so yeah. I guess for you and, and I'm more on your side a little bit here with with respect to our conversation and the flavor I like personally anyway as opposed to John Smart to say that forecasting which he would call formally strategic foresight forecasting yeah. is a lot more quality quantitative and specific and has got attached specific timelines and outcomes and this and that and the mm. other. Um, but futurism is a lot more speculative and, and we shouldn't lie about that and we shouldn't hide it. And you're very frank at putting it straight up and forward to be very clear about this. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's a lot more again to what we started our conversation today with, which is our imagination and what if, and what might be and how things may turn out. And, and then, so what, how, what are the implications of all of that? And so I personally have always kind of gravitated towards your flavor of, of futurism than than John. But again, I don't yeah. have his kind of hard scientific background uh, like he did, and and maybe uh, I'm not so quantitative anyway. So I, I'm not a, a big fan of statistics and charts and all those things, which are, I guess, inevitable part of your daily work when you work for the Department of Navy, per se. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I still take into consideration forecasts. I still look at quantitative data. I still look at you know people that are saying you know over the next ten years, according to all of these assumptions and these conditions, that we could potentially see you know growth like this or decline like that or whatever, and percentage points. And and I do use them in my work. I absolutely do. But I think I think we end up with something that's a little bit. Uh, more useful when we start thinking about people and places and dynamics, cultural change. I, I, I often talk about the feelings of our future. How does it feel? And like when we write stories, how does that, that future feel? And once you can place yourself in a story mentally and the way that your brain works, you start to empathize deeply with the dynamics. And that's why we use storytelling uh, so much uh, with, with the clients that we work with, because you suddenly can place yourself in that position and, and tell story. There, there's an entire chapter of the book that never made it. And it was a piece of fiction that I wrote about San Francisco in the year 2087 about the company organization X um, that I talk about in the book as a, as sort of a made up company that's that I'm using for my, my scenario sort of outlines in the book. And, and that sort of talks about a young girl called Jocasta living and thriving, surviving, having dynamics with different people, some biohacking, some so solar punk sort of uh, movements, uh, activism in, in the streets of San Francisco. And I think that that's what forecasting is missing. And that's fine. But at the same time, I, and I haven't read John Smart and what he does, when you actually look at war gaming and, and things that are used in military contexts, it's very much about telling stories as well. I mean, there's a there's a fantastic futurist here in Toronto called Carl Trader, and he writes books. <clears throat> and uh, he wrote he wrote uh, a, a book for the Canadian military. This literally a novel. 
it, you know, design fiction. It's fantastic. And I really love that sort of like, it's, it hugely inspires me. Yeah, it's called something like Crisis in Zephra or something like that. That's right, yeah. Crisis in Zephra. Yeah, and you can download that off the internet for free, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's public domain because that's, that's what uh, they paid him basically to produce the book and put it, make it available online for everyone. I've had Carl a couple of times on my podcast uh, and he's had great impact, by the way, on my uh, career and my trajectory and, and my understanding of the singularity. Uh, he was the guy who basically put the, the nail in the coffin on the singular future coffin many years ago when you told me, I like the singularity, but the singularity is like a lens. And I like having yeah. other lenses in my toolkit. So then I put it down right. and I put on another lens and it gives me a totally new perspective of the world. And doing this over and over again ends up producing a better, richer vision of the future and, and the possible futures. And, and that, to me, uh, probably, I don't know if it was 2013, 2014, 10 years ago, was a big light bulb moment. Because up until that moment, right. I was basically more or less a singularity fanboy. Yeah. For sure. Me, me too. I'd sort of, I'd bought into it. I don't think there was the amount of information out there. There was there weren't as many people sort of, you know, uh, foresight, speculating about what's coming and being creative. And, and yeah, we were looking to, you know, the Kurtzwellian idea of singularity. And, you know, I met, I met Ray Kurtzwell about eight years ago, you know, in, you can't doubt that this is exciting stuff. And these are good, big ideas that are provocative. But when you start to peel off the layers, you start to realize that there's lots of different paths forward, then I think it gets really interesting. I, I, I sort of went through a stage in my life where I, I had existential crises as I started thinking about, you know, artificial intelligence systems and surveillance and data capture and social media networks and intelligence or, you know, intelligence organizations around the world and the dynamics. And you sort of get to the point where you feel that you know too much and you're sort of sat on a couch in a dark room at five in the morning wondering, you know, can you carry on to do this work? And you sort of have to be, have sort of levity and 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 rise out of that and realize that okay this is the situation this is the world but there's a there's a huge amount of human potential and there's a huge amount of like cultural hijacking of all of these horrible icky systems out in the world that we can actually affect and i always say that you know futurism is activism and and, and i think that that's a really important part of this as well and uh that sort of liberated me from being a huge fanboy of you know the poster people of, of of futures work and 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 sort of trying to find the more interesting people that live in the shadows and you know i was always into like the cyberpunks and bruce sterling and 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 you know william gibson seeing these people speak just really blew the doors off it's like kurtzweil and william gibson in a room together i'd love to see that because it would just be two people like butting heads, heads like stags you know I would place all my money on Gibson any part of the day. And it's again <laughs> exactly. because of that Wildly imagination. Smart. He's got, if anyone has incredible imagination, it's got to be Gibson. Now, Kurzweil may be a, a brilliant guy, a brilliant inventor, and, and kind of a very nice guy. I, I did an interview in person with him in his office many years ago. Uh, and, yeah. and he yeah. was like the most humble and generous kind of people uh, that that I've ever met, but but I would place my bet uh, on on Gibson any day, all, all my money entirely on on him. 
but let me ask you this though, because that kind of brings us, you know, we, we've had a kind of a similar path a little bit here with respect to the singularity and, and specifically what we yeah. might end up calling the singular future. What's wrong with the singular future? And, and you even touch a little bit about it in your uh, book when you touch upon uh, the the, Califor- the so-called California ideology. And I would say perhaps yeah. the epitome of that would be Peter Diamandis's book, uh, Bold, The Future is Better Than You Think. Yeah. So what, what's yeah, wrong I with mean... that idea that, hey, guys, the future is better than you think? So it, it's kind of, so the Californian ideology was was a really fantastic uh, article that was written and published on the internet and put out there in the world, which is like you know profit and money and and technological progress at any cost, sell everything to anyone. It's kind of it, it's a little bit strange and and greedy and very Silicon Valley. If you've spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, it's not really changed its 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 spots in the last sort of 25 years. It's it's still like relentless. We'll take funding from anyone, we'll sell to anyone, growth at any cost, exponentials, yada yada yada, right? <clears throat> the singular future is something that people like Mark Zuckerberg and you know even even Bill Gates to where you know way back in the day and Steve Barman it's like buy this product use this fit into this box operate in this way in your life and suddenly I'm like you you're like me I'm like my family everyone's sort of confined to these you know ways of working and you know, we sort of call that technological colonization in a way you know we, we we can only like a post and then suddenly you've got five different options but they're only really five different possibilities but the the real difference is that you and me we've got completely different trajectories in life we've got completely different you know thoughts and feelings cultural reference points uh, we've got different hopes and dreams we want to be in different places we've got different kinds of relationships and all of the people that we touch have got different futures as well so that's why we have to really imagine the plurality of our futures that's why when i was naming the book and i was working with my publisher it was like oh we're going to call it facing our future and it's like no you have to call it facing our futures and it's a distinction that I have to teach everyone that it, there's a plurality. Every person in the room has got a different a, a different future ahead of us. And ultimately, whatever decision you make today creates an infinite number of possibilities. So if you think about the complexity of that and the world, when we're thinking about policy or creating technological systems or we're trying to write a story to connect with as many people as possible we kind of have to create some breathing space to allow an opportunity to for someone to self-actualize within those platforms or through the story and their interpretation or whatever technology finds it really hard to have multiple futures because they're, they're literally putting you in a box and giving you a manual and saying you work that way but within that within that container, you can operate uh, different ways and you can basically, I, I think content creation is is one of the most interesting things. Like YouTube works with a set of functionality, but the content that you publish to YouTube can be absolutely anything that you want, you know, within guidelines and decency, right? So that's futures within a future state of technology, right? So it, it gets really interesting when you think about that. But yeah, this is all about being aware that anything can change. Um, and any people can really have an influence on your life and you can have an influence on them. And ultimately, it's it, the infinite complexity is something that we we revel in 
in futures work, but it's also the most tricky thing to work out. You know, whether you're a fossil fuels company trying to con- consider a renewable energy, a complete disruption to your business, and how, you know, 10 different kinds of people are going to basically consume your product. Um, you know, the archetypes of advertising are, are almost over today. You can't have, you know, I worked with a large telecoms company in, in Canada, and uh, they were like, okay, our target audience is... Uh, a white a white man and a white wife and he's got a son and a daughter and the daughter's a little bit older and the wife makes the purchase decision and i sat in the room with a client and i said you realize that there are single parents there are queer parents there are people without kids there are you know kids that are 18 19 years old that don't have parents there's all of these flavors there's there's different machinations in groups you've got co co co-housing and co-living so you're even talking about groups and then they were like but we can't we can't think about that because they've got a poverty of imagination going back to that, right, Nick? So uh, it's a sort of what I'm saying is a long-winded way of like you have to think about um, multiple futures, plural, because uh, we're all different and we've got that infinite possibility when we all come together. Yeah, I love that the futures in your title. I love that. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't fail to notice that it's futures plural, and I love that uh, precisely because. After my conversation with uh, Carl Schroeder and before that, by the way, the other singularity skeptic that blew my my mind was uh, Charlie Strauss, who wrote Accelerando, and yet he himself turns out to be a big singularity skeptic for similar reasons. But basically, I got to the conclusion that the multiplicity is always going to be better than the singularity because the singularity smacks too much of that kind of California ideology, which suffers from what I would call technological determinism suffers from uh, right. lack of flexibility, suffers from teleological kind of uh, unidirectional, unitrajectory kind of uh, inevitability to it uh, and, and therefore destroys our ability to imagine alternative futures which leaves us impoverished in our imagination but also Im- impoverished in our right. reality as you would say. Yeah, absolutely correct. I mean, and, and this is what politicians do. It's what leadership around the world does. It's what people that run the companies that we work for and the platforms that we sign up to. It, it, it's what everyone wants because it's easier and it's controllable and you know totalitarian from a technological perspective, right? Uh, but we we know that humans are, are, are beautiful and expressive and. And, and wildly different. You know, there's a bit of a revolution right, right now in terms of humanity. You know, people can express their sexuality, they can express their thoughts and their feelings, whether they're really extreme left or extreme right. We, we're sort of in this big melting pot and this soup in the world. And it, it's, I think it's more vibrant. I mean, there's a lot more conflict and it's a lot more difficult. But, you know, this is the way that humanity's been, uh, you know, for the whole of time. But, you know, I, I like to think that there are communities of dynamicism that are actually going to have more of an effect on, you know, thinking about po- progressive policy, progressive technological platforms and expressions of ourselves, you know, in a digital sense, as well as in a in a real world offline sense as well. So, Nick, we've been chatting now for, for a little while, so it's time to to start perhaps refocusing our attention a little bit more to your book, sure. even though I have to say that so far we've been kind of touching on many or if not most of the themes that you right. already go into much into depth uh, in here. But before we do that, let me just ask you, 
why futurism? And you started with kind of an admission or a confession, maybe even I should call it, that you're a recovering marketing executive. So perhaps yeah. you should start by giving us a little more about your why, the story of why and how you kind of ended up as a futurist, if in your previous life or previous professional life anyway, you were in marketing. Well, yeah, I, I, so I was a management consultant. I was a technical architect. I ended up in advertising uh, when I moved to Canada in 2008. And I was in strategy. So I, I was really trying to work out what was, what was coming next. I started to play around with new technologies like 3D printing, you know, cryptocurrencies in the early days like Bitcoin, uh, and just sort of uh, encouraging clients to sort of take a leap in terms of trying out new and funky things. And, and what kind of switched was a, a great friend of mine, um, moved from moved from Germany to Vancouver where I was living I hadn't seen him for a few years but we'd grown up together <clears throat> and like, we're basically best friends and and he's he's in futures as well but he like builds very progressive you know headsets and a whole bunch of different stuff in R&D labs and went on to do futures it got to the point that in 2012 uh, me and him we drove down to Portland Oregon we went to a little unconference called Cyborg Camp it was being run by Amber Case and uh, Amber Case is an incredible thinker about thinking about digital cult culture cyborg anthropology calm calm technology and a number of different things great friend of mine and uh, we went there and at this unconference at lunchtime I said can I bring this to Vancouver? I, I kind of want to run a conference like this. I'm I'm curious. And I, I really got ignited to start, you know, questioning a number of different things. So the following year, got out my credit card, 150 people flew from all over the world to turn up. Amber Case was a bit of a rock star right back then. She'd done a big TED talk and whatever. Um, so me and a number of people, we spoke and we got people together. And there were incredible people in the audience like Chris Dancy and some people that I highly respect. And it sort of ignited this idea of like futures. But it started off with, you know, the future of hum humanity and technology. And then the following year, it, it sort of bled out into education and government, doing some speculative futures work with uh, people like Afshin Mayan um, that, that does like works with Elon Musk and a number of other people at Neuralink now on on designing their systems. And and it sort of uh, it sort of rolled along. I started writing a lot of sort of more provocative pieces in the Huffington Post and Forbes. I eventually got to a point where I was working for a software company um, based out of Australia and it was a gig gig platform uh, company. And they were like, are you a futurist? You're doing all this stuff or, or are you our regional director? And I was like, well, I think it's time to move on. And I sort of leapt, leapt into doing the future speaking and, and doing a lot more TV and radio. And, and that sort of really ignited everything. And, and, you know, I call myself recovering ad exec and, and uh, management consultant because those are jobs where you're literally told what to do. You have to literally smile and shake the hands of clients and say that everything's going to be okay. And what I realized was as I, as I started working with clients, it's okay for things to feel tough and to be challenged and for CEOs to be sat there and for me to say, no, actually, there's a lot of work that we need to do and there's some things that are going to come to you over the next sort of 30 to 50 years that are going to fundamentally change your business and you're not ready. Um, so I, I kind of say that I'm hired for the things I used to get fired for. <laughs> right? It, 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 it's kind of interesting. So that's why I say I'm sort of, I think I'm kind of recovered. 
you know, I think I've recovered from uh, from from being an ad, ad exec, and I learned so much good stuff from being a management consultant. I got to work with some fantastic people and companies. But yeah, it's it, now we've got an honest conversation in life, and uh, there's no looking back. I'm kind of unemployable by normal companies, but I can be hired, and the teams that I bring together are hired to be in the room to be different, to challenge people. And so that, that that people suddenly walk out of the room with a little bit of a, a broader perspective on the world. And I've literally had people walk out of, you know, lectures and workshops, quit their jobs and gone back to university to do a different kind of like master's degree to change their focus in life. I've also had like legal uh, professionals that run practices that have changed entire practices after seeing some of the things I was speaking about. And you know, having conversations with me because, you know, the landscape was changing and they realized that there was a huge opportunity. Um, there was one down in Detroit and he suddenly changed his focus towards electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Now he's got this amazing legal practice that was about four or five years ahead of everyone else in starting to talk about that. So it's kind of hugely exciting to me, you know. Good for you. Good for you, Nick. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud for what you've done because most Ad executive or, or 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 marketing people would never actually dare to do that kind of a <clears throat> jump into the unknown of of the future and start creating it and and that kind of connects with your other kind of uh, slogan. Uh, it was also you you mentioned it already, but it was also one of your fifty things for your fiftieth birthday, and that was that futurism is yeah. activism. I I'm I'm a big fan of that, and 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 yeah, and you know the best place to start doing that is always in our life, obviously. Uh, right, but exactly. even though most people miss that point entirely, and it's always about uh, from an advice point of view, you should do this and you should do that, but they don't do it themselves. And I always say we have to all live our message, otherwise it doesn't work because it, it doesn't matter what we say unless we live it. Um, so let me ask you this then. Let's start from the big picture and then zoom down yeah. and see if, how, and where your book fits in it. Because you're a guy who looks at signals and trends and, and, and how things may turn out 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now. So what are the big yeah. kind of, what are the interesting signals that you've been monitoring for the last decade? What are the big trends that we should uh, that all of us should pay attention to or be aware of, and perhaps most importantly, what do they tell us, and and how do they compound to create the biggest challenges or problems that our civilization is facing today? In your view, so if if you'd go back like eight ten years ago, I was very much focused on the growth of data, the application of artificial intelligence. In fact, I used to, um, I studied artificial intelligence at university. It was very sort of rudimentary back in the nineties, but you know, following the trajectory of that and the growth and the effect and and the sort of the ability to really change the world through through insight and through automation, I, I was really focused on that. In more recent years and over time, as I got to work uh, with people that worked in the natural resources industries, uh, to work with the United Nations, amazing people like Yusuf Nassif, the director of adaption at the United Nations Framework for Climate Change Conference, I then started realizing that, sure, it's okay to look at the systems and the sensors and, and genetic engine, all this good stuff, and I still do that. But really, the things that excite me now is getting into the... The, the details behind global dynamics around the water energy food nexus 
and how water scarcity is affecting energy generation, how renewable energy is sort of overtaking fossil fuel um, investment and and, uh, generation and changing dynamics, Um, how things like agriculture and food production at scale is, is struggling, but sort of really been the thing that's helped grow GDP in society and country and population and, and culture in a way, right? So it, it, I, I look at those three. It's the nexus, so the water, energy, food nexus. I also consider waste very carefully when you start to realize that the mass of all plastic waste in the world today is twice the mass of, 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 all, of, of uh, mammals in the world. So we've got a huge amount of waste. We literally bury it underground and say that, you know, and every day we're, you know, waste waste is a cultural artifact of our industrial revolutions, right? So they're the things. They're the big mega trends. I, I love looking at population growth. I love looking at dynamics and changes and the, the dynamics of economic changes with, where you're going to have China and India becoming like the top two economic powers in the world with um, the US relegated to number three, how like places like Lagos, Nigeria in Africa is going to be 55 million people by 2050 or you know, 88 million people by 2100, a new breed of megacity and the dynamics that can come from that. And and how do, how do we feed these people? How do we keep them hydrated? How can we keep the lights on in these places? That's the thing. And, and, and I'm all in on that. And it's why I focus most of the examples in my book around those those elements and all of the keynotes and presentations and workshops I do, it, it's all got those as a basis of understanding those dynamics before we get to anything else in the world because nothing else is going to exist without working out a good, sustainable way for for those three to in, interoperate and for us to be able to thrive in the world. Well, what about those like Mr. Elon who would tell us that you know, the biggest challenge that humanity is facing today is AI and it's bigger than nukes. Uh, and it's kind of like calling right. the demon uh, from those horror movies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Aren't you and shouldn't you as a futurist who looks at tech and AI and all of those things share that concern? Do, do you agree? Do you disagree? How do you see that? Yeah, for sure. So, so I graduated in 1996. In 1997, I went for a job interview. And uh, the job interview was in defense uh, as a computer programmer. And the, the interview I went for was to, to use Lisp, which is a really old artificial intelligence platform. You know, really, really rudimentary. It's still being used in a lot of different places, probably still being used in, in the applications that I was interviewed for, um, to program the guidance systems for Polaris missiles. Now, I sat there. And I was like, okay, this is cool in one way because the application and, and playing with all this like well-funded stack of technology, but at the same time, I'm not going to help people kill people. So thank you very much. I'm going to walk out into a different world and, and try something else. So I, I've understood, I've understood though, those ethical dilemmas and the challenges of things like artificially intelligent systems and the campaign to stop killer robots and no sharky and all those people behind that over the past few years. I understand that very, very carefully. You know, people like Elon Musk and anyone in Silicon Valley or anyone that's tech tech centric, obviously they're going to call, say that something technological is is the biggest uh, challenge in the world. And it's like, oh, yeah, and now look at my investment portfolio in open AI and all these other areas and how we can solve that. And, hey, you know, it's that techno-savior sort of complex. Um, 
uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Tom Goodwin, that is quite well known online, you know, he says that the man that sells purple paint is going to want to paint the world purple. <laughs> so it, it, it's like so, something like Elon Musk saying that AI is the greatest problem. And it's like, you know, and then you, you look at the, his investment portfolio and how he actually makes money from solving that problem. It's fine, right? Um, <laughs> again, it's a very narrow, narrow state of thinking, right? I think, I think, I think about over and above water energy. I think about mental health, multi generational trauma. Things are a little bit more uh, difficult to pin down and work out, and things that have got a, a deeper, more societal um, challenge to us than you know worrying if an artificial intelligence system is going to be autonomous enough to. I don't know, take take the job away from a taxi driver or take the job away from someone that's going to press a button to, to, to fire off a missile because those kinds of activities are something that are going to be undertaken and they're still fueled by a human in the background. They're just not the, the people pressing the buttons or driving the vehicles. They're just the decision makers that say, go and do that and, and do as I say, right? There's still the human in the machine in the mix. So by, by, by its very nature of Elon Musk saying that AI is our greatest threat, it's actually humans are our greatest threat. Um, so yeah, it's cyclical, and uh, it, it, you've got to unpack it a little bit more. So, so let me ask you this then: You have the world of Elon Musk, which uh, who actually I should say commands much more the public attention than any of us, sure, probably ever will, uh, sure, due to his platform, due to his followership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For whatever reasons, um, and so people, the average people, are seeing his predictions and his warnings about AI. On the one hand, on the other hand, they're sure. watching the news with the war in Ukraine, and on the third yeah. hand, me and you, uh, who are kind of uh, professional keynotes and uh, speakers and, and futurists, are talking about futures. And my question to you, as a newly published. Uh, you know, hot commodity on Amazon books. Where does your book fit within that kind of a world for the average person, perhaps? And what yeah. can people gain from getting your book, reading it? How does it fit into this world that we're talking about? So one one thing I wanted to do um, when I sat down to write the book, um, it, it, came, it came from an idea. It came from a short essay that I did in another book called "The Future Starts Now," which was uh, um, edited by um, Theo Priestley and Bronwyn Williams. And it was all about start with dystopia, the idea of thinking about dystopic thinking to fuel decision making because it broadens our perspectives away from like everything's going to be okay. I wanted to write a book that not only explored that idea, but a book that introduced people to what futures thinking is. So it's almost a little bit simplistic, uh, you know, and I, I've shared it with other people around the world. And some people are like, well, you know, it does, it's not really, you know, exciting in the way that I thought it'd be. And it's like, no, but this is for the executive that's starting from no no idea around thinking about futures or you know people in ad companies or people in government that, that have been sort of focused on you know four yearly cycles and haven't really looked up and, and considered how big the world can be. So it's kind of like a primer. It's certainly not like the only futures book that you need to have in your library. It when I write books and when I read books as well, 
I like to have a reference. I can read, I can read five or ten pages, and it's useful. And then I can leave it alone, and I can come back to it. So that's kind of how I've 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 written it. I mean, it's a little bit conversational. It's a, it's a little bit introspective. I've tried to put tools in there that are kind of useful, or reference points, or stories that are are kind of just going to help us like shift our mindset a little bit as well. So, I mean, that's what the book is all about is, is really just priming that plus introducing some of the methods that I use as well. And uh, even the idea around futures consciousness and changing our mindset to be open to new ideas. I've just tried to really highlight amazing thinkers that are out there that have done incredible research reports that need to have need to be shared. So this isn't like a, a completely unique piece of work from me. It's it's like a perspective and it's shining a light on probably like two dozen people that have done incredible work and need to be sort of uh, recognized and we can dive into their work a little deeper and then apply that in different ways. So in other words, what's the change you'd like to make with your book? Uh, or in other words, maybe another way of saying that will be what's the impact? How how would you measure your success of your book? Uh, what do you want to accomplish? What do you fight for? What do you fight against? Yeah. So I was in, uh, this time last year, I flew down to Scottsdale, Arizona. I spoke at a conference. It was my first in-person conference since the pandemic went down. It was, <laughs> everyone was vaccinated and tested. Everyone was wearing masks. And these are like, these are like the presidents of Pepsi and other people like that. And um, one of the other speakers was a great guy called Paul Polman, who was very kind to give me an endorsement, ex-CEO of Unilever. Um, and now he works for an organization called Imagine and starting to really, really, you know, motivate people to be more sustainable and think about that. And he did a study and he shared this with us. And he said, you know, long term, in the context of a modern organization in the US, in terms of long term package for recognition of results, is about 1.3 years. So what I want to do with my book, I know it's crazy, absolutely insane there are no ceos there's, there's certainly no ceos in the west i don't think that i can i can imagine that have got like 50 year horizons or 100 year horizons and think beyond you know them existing today maybe von schoenart is the only person that comes to my mind Right. I mean, you've got Masayoshi Son from SoftBank, who's got a 300 year strategy. You've got people from, uh, you know, Kiyosera, the CEO over there. He's got a whole new way of thinking. He's almost like a, a Buddhist monk uh, sort of approach to things as well. But, you know, I what I want, Nick, is for people to read my book and to look out a little further, even if it's five to 10 years, and have an idea of what comes next. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I was working with a great friend of mine in Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, and he's got a startup. And he saw me speak and he goes, there's something to this future's work. And I've just got this this platform and it was um, for the management of, of human resources, like janitors and, and the such like. And he goes, I, I, I want to explore, you know, future horizons. I was like, okay. It's like, you know, what's the vision of your company in five years time? He was like, I don't really have one. I just want to get acquired. And it's like, okay. <laughs> so we started at ground zero and we start, we, we went through and we did some workshops. In fact, some of that work and it was paid for by the Nova Scotian government, which is fantastic. Uh, we, we, we went through, we did the work and suddenly now they've got a vision for 20 plus years. 
They understand their role in the world, world and their impact that they can have in the long run. They can understand you know, the roles of community and technology and dynamics of business better than they have ever had. Following the work, they, re, they, they restructured their board. They got rid of some of the people that were sort of, you know, the older way of working and the people that weren't being progressive. Uh, they brought in new people. They restructured things. They came up with new ideas of products and new ways of consumer engagement based on futures thinking. And, 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 and that company is, is growing faster than it ever did before. And the perspective of, of this, this individual, this, the CEO, is, is, is so much bigger. And when I see that, I think that there's an incredible opportunity for any organization to do this. I'm working with a very large global engineering company, and they're, they're fully embracing the idea of scenario planning and thinking different about you know what new business lines that they can create, how they can get into things that are clearly going to be a huge impact in the world that they're not playing a part in. And, and that's really interesting. There's still a challenge in terms of being rewarded uh, for for long term performance, and maybe we don't get rewarded for something that happens in fifty years time that you you sowed the seed of today, and maybe that's okay, right? So in a way, what you're saying is uh, you have a specific experience, specific evidence that futurism yeah. can give meaning and purpose to yeah. businesses and organizations, and kind of. Yeah. motivate them to get themselves to, to rearrange and reorganize and refocus and restructure themselves together uh, in a new way and point in, in a new direction they never even realized was available before. Yeah, and start to treat consumers like humans and start to treat employees like humans. I did a keynote a few years ago and it was an engineering company that built huge infrastructure, billions of dollars of projects. I was like, when was the last time you actually told some of your executive that you actually truly loved them? And it shook this guy so hard. I sat down with him afterwards and we, we had a drink. It's like, we, we don't talk about emotions in our business. We're an engineering company. I'm like, <laughs> have you thought about maybe, maybe the, there's value in talking about emotions and hope? And, and honestly, like we've kind of, this is the world that we've created. It's like, you know, perform, you know, deliver, you know, a consumer is is the an end point to a transaction, and it's it's different when we start to humanize things, and that's what I think. You know, the idea of hope engineering or the idea of you know humanizing the world um, that, that we operate in from a business perspective is is it, it's going to be the game changer for everyone, and that's what people are really waking up to, and that's that's a huge part of the work that I do. Yeah, I, I can kind of associate with that from my experience uh, with uh, the Danish Engineering Society, who are one of my favorite repeat clients, actually, in Copenhagen. Uh, in Denmark, I think basically all engineers are kind of brought unto, under this umbrella of, it's kind of like a union for all engineers and they're paying monthly fees. It's, it's a fantastic organization and just like most other Scandinavian mm. things, they're kind of very out of the box, but but yet highly engineering oriented. So when I went and, and started talking about some of those same things that you're talking about, uh, originally they were looking at me a little different. And, and then we had this whole conversation about AI and how actually it's the people behind the AI that 
the buck stops there at the people, not at the AI, because the AI is being created by people. So therefore, it's not about the artificial part of AI, but about the intelligence part. And so far, at least, the intelligence part is not the artificial part, but it's us. One way or another, directly as the creators or indirectly as the data providers and the bias providers and the goal providers and all of those things. Uh, And so I had to fight off, like you do, this kind of attitude that technology is going to save us. And, And my answer was like, technology never saved anyone. It's people who created the technology who saved us and they created it for a reason and they had a motivation and they had this desire to make a difference, to to save people, to help us. And so it all starts with the person. The technology is just the means. And so we had to get over that kind of an engineering bias. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and again, you know, engineering is a is incredible discipline. Sure. And hats off to engineers sure. that are out there. Um but they're the people that have to work within the constraints of physics and material, understanding materials, like architects as well, understanding how everything can work. Um, you can't be creative and, and sort of, you know, pie in the sky and, and sort of floating around like, you know, some of the futurist work that I do and, and design a bridge that's going to hold up to basically last for 50 years and, and not collapse when a, when a truck drives over it, right? So, you know, there, there are roles and there are means and there are ways and whatever, but there's still, I think, um, it's still really interesting and important to understand the dynamics of who we are as humans um, within the mix of things as well. Nick, one of the tools, sort of the, if I can say, proprietary tools that you offer in your book um, is kind of the positive dystopian framework. Can you perhaps break that down for us and and tell us, first of all, is that not an oxymoron, positive dystopian at the same time? (laughs) And secondly, uh, yeah, how do we use it? What is it? Why is it useful? Yeah, so uh, I, so w- when I was writing the book, I already had a framework that I was using and trying to work out, you know, how we can travel to through two different trajectories through a, a number of different analyses we do um, with signals and, and identifying trends, but then trying to work out the positive and dystopian effects. You know, a positive effect is you know you know progress and equality and all the good stuff, right? Um, and dystopian effects is like you know greed and 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 reduce usage or, or you know colonized technology coming in to the scheme of things. The positive dystopian framework really just uh, allows us to do some pretty standard futures work. So set out principles, um, look at the signals and trends, um, ask what if, do some scenario analysis, maybe tell some stories, and then sort of pass it through filters of, you know, organizational change and cultural uh, cultural differences, uh, political systems, environmental challenges and whatever, and then sort of project, you know, what might happen over the next sort of, you know, three or four different horizons, 10, 20, 30, 50 plus years. So the, the the framework that I put together has got a slightly different flavor that you can take a group of signals and it might be about energy and water and food and you can mash them together and you can do analysis. Now, a lot of traditional futures work is very much focused on positive positivity and that's fine. Uh, it's like, okay, w- what good can come from this? Let's think about a positive trajectory. But I, I very soon realized that if we didn't consider how bad it can be with bad decisions, 
that have historically happened. The last 300 years of the industrial revolutions that went before us have literally been a litany of decisions um, focused on more dystopian principles around greed and control and you know, very sort of closed, closed systems. If we don't do that in futures work, then we're ignoring the opportunity to see how bad it can get, what risks can exist in our future, and, and how we can actually tell that story. <clears throat> so the positive dystopian framework is sort of being provocative in its name. But it's just saying that there's two sides to this coin, we have to be holistic. And when we do this work, you have to realize that it, we might come up with a situation that's not necessarily making us feel comfortable because something that's a, a possible future has actually got some terrible effects on you know how we live or equality or equity and whatever. And we have to be careful with that. What we're seeing in the world is this short, short-sighted thinking. You know, politicians stand up and say, okay, uh, small nuclear reactors, that's going to be our future. And, you know, in the prairies in Canada, and it's like, well, you're saying that because you found huge uranium deposits in northern Saskatchewan. Um, basically, we've got something like small small nuclear reactors, which is based on an old model of pumping gas, um, you know, refining that, you know, burning it for energy and then having waste, right? Even though there's a huge debate about, about nuclear that we probably won't get into here. Uh, and... So that, that that's a hugely dystopian perspective because in 30 years' time, you end up with expensive infrastructure that's potentially going to be uh, stranded assets um, replaced by things like renewable energy with nuclear waste uh, more, ben- more abundant than ever before and a huge amount of jobs lost because suddenly we, we bet on the wrong horse. Whereas what we should be doing now is saying, okay, let's look at all of the re- renewable energy sources and let's look at fossil fuels and let's look at nuclear. Let's look at all of them in a larger scenario. And let's put them through this, this framework and see where we end up. And very quickly, you see the things that are going to be good for humanity divide themselves into sort of the positive trajectories and what they deliver as being good for humanity and the things that are causing pollution, um, that are dangerous jobs and and very sort of expensive infrastructure to maintain sort of very much disappear into sort of the dystopian trajectory as well. And just looking across, you can start to see the dynamics of a country even if you look at enough signals. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to do with this. Uh, again, I haven't found something out there that does this exactly. And the clients that I've worked with have, have had a lot of aha moments realizing that suddenly you know, we, we can, we can take, make different decisions and suddenly get ourselves into a bad situation. And, but we, we've now got the foresight to understand that, you know, beyond the four, four year election cycle in 25 years, that there's going to be something that we have to take care of. So if we have honest conversations about that today, and we have to go and get more money to invest in something that's maybe a little bit more expensive or more experimental and whatever, at least we can start those activities today. And I think that it just makes things a little bit easier from a conversation perspective. Um, But obviously, when you present the idea of scenarios and stories and speculations people can still say well that's nice but it's you know it's just futures work right it's speculative but then it comes back to what if what if the world does change and uh it's it's interesting i I was chatting to a fossil fuel company two days ago and i don't really work with fossil fuel companies unless they want to imagine a world without what what they do today and they can imagine themselves to be providing energy in a renewable way and i'm not talking about clean gas which is just insane um 
and but when you sit down and you start writing down what if questions and it's like what if in 30 years time no one's going to buy your product your company doesn't exist then ex executives start to really step up and that's a dystopian situation for their company right um but the, on the positive side they they've got the the capital to be able to invest in renewable sources and dial that side up of their business and suddenly change the world and be the good guys for once right yeah, I, I think psychologically we are very much uh, motivated by the negative, by the aversion to things that we don't want to let happen. Uh, so, so I can see how your argument makes total sense to me that that high level executives would be very much motivated by the dystopian future. Now, many of them may not want to hear it. Like, for example, I was right. sort of being pitched by my agent to do a. Uh, a chicken producers conference in South America. Uh, the, sure. the South American, I don't know, chicken producers were, were getting together in, in maybe Chile, it was, yeah. I forget. Anyway, and, and so we were pitching kind of like an out-of-the-box uh, potential for me to go be the, their keynote speaker. And, and I told him, look, I've been, I'm going to be straight up with you guys. I've been a vegan now for eight years. So right. you may not want to hear one word that I want to say, and neither may your members. However, I believe that there could be a lot of good uh, kind of information and, and future possibilities for you to consider looking at it from right. the other point of view, a view that you may don't, maybe you don't consider very often uh, you know, in your business. And I think that right. can only make you stronger in the long run, even though it may be annoying uh, and irritating, but it can actually be very rewarding if you if you consider it seriously. Unfortunately, uh, you know, they... they, <laughs> they yeah. So they didn't want to proceed with it ultimately, but that was their choice. They just, they just... Yeah, you know, this is the... Uh... <laughs> confirmation bias yeah. right um, we raise chickens we're always going to raise chickens we're going to do it in a way that, that that's safer and cleaner and maybe more sustainable and maybe that's going to lead to us making some more money down down the road but we're always going to raise chickens and i was in savannah georgia last week speaking to farmers and some of them raised you know raised chickens and pigs and whatever and i spoke about you know plant-based plant-based protein and i spoke about you know cellular protein you know grown in bioreactors and and you kind of have to put it in their own terms in a way and say that you're going to be disrupted but disruption doesn't necessarily mean replacement over time it could do over a long period of time it totally could do so you might not actually raise pigs you might actually just have bioreactors where you where you've got some prize pigs you take some cells from them they're nicely retired and in you can basically grow a, a you know a, a completely renewable source of uh, of pig protein or Petri you know, dish of, bacon. Uh, pork protein yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, and it's interesting, you sort of talk about this, and they're like, oh, you know, this is a fad, and that is a fad. And is it like, computers were a fad, cars were a fad, bikes were a fad, everything was a fad at some point, right? Um, but then I said, okay, so the, the possibility in sort of 2050, they're saying, this is my quantitative uh, stuff coming in, $7.5 billion market of, of, of protein, animal protein, by, uh, by 2050. Just take 1% of that. That's a $750 billion market. 
And it's like, do you not want to be part of a $750 billion market? It's just 1% of your business. So you can just diversify. You can help these people do better. Uh, and then it sort of changes the conversation in a way. I, I've had many conversations like you just had, and people are like, yeah, we're not going to go with you because, you know, suddenly this isn't really going to like... <laughs> what they thought... Because, you know... You know, that's, that's kind of the conversation between what the client wants and what the client needs because that client right. thought that they want someone to talk to them about automating chicken coops, right? Robotizing... Right egg production, the chicken processing, and all of that. So that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. That's futurism for them, right? Tell us how we're going to get sure. robots to do our chicken farms and process. Like that. That's kind of their idea. So that's what the client wants. Right. But I believe that the client needs a bigger picture than that. Not that narrow yeah, sure. automatization kind of a view, but even the bigger picture that there may be shifts, that there may be undercurrents that undermine and make you obsolete completely, right? But so so right. so we have to struggle, you and me, with 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 like what the client wants from us and actually us trying to give them what we believe they actually need. <laughs> you know, I, I I use the Trojan horse uh, sort of approach and. You know, I, I, I will talk about, you know, the, the role of data and automation and all these things. And then I'll start talking about growing human organs in pig human, you know, pig human chimeras. And what do you do with the carcass of this like human pig bacon? And, and then I start talking about, you know, growing you know, protein in bioreactors and how regulations are changing. And people like Tony Sieber are saying that the beef industry is going to be bankrupt in the US by 2030, you know, deflecting to make them look just so they've got this broader picture. So I, I sort of Trojan horse into the situation. But at the same time, Nick, like with, with you as a, as a vegan, right, I still won't step into a room with people that don't want to hear something that I'm passionate about. Uh, and I'm not, for example, I'm not going to sit in a room to tell the oil industry how to pump more oil or the gas industry to sell more gas. I'm just not. I'm never going to do that. I'm going to talk to them about what comes next and what comes beyond their business. Because, uh, you know, I just wrote a letter, uh, wrote an email to a client today. And I was like, you're not going to be here in 30 years time. Because the dynamics today are showing us that your business is going to become obsolete. So what are you going to do? We want to work with you. But are you, are you ready to work with us, right? And that's, again, coming back to that reoccurring theme that we've touched on several times, that futurism is activism. Because it is not right. just the possible future or the plausible future as when we were talking with Glenn Heemstra, who is one of your colleagues at uh, futures.com, yeah. but about the preferable future, right? And and so we have to be clear and distinct about all of those possibilities so that ultimately we can make the right decisions and steer us towards the preferable futures rather than the plausible futures. And that's another thing that, that I think is important for us to, and we're both kind of beating that drum against the California ideology uh, and, and, and in general, but also I would claim Peter Diamandis in particular, because there is that presumption there that things are going to turn out for the best on their own accord. Yeah. That you see the future is better than you think. So don't worry about it, right? Yeah. I would say, no, the future, first of all, there is no such thing as the future. Second of all, it's not better or worse, but it is whatever we make it right. by doing something about it. And therefore, activism is crucial one way or another. So if you're passive, maybe 
it's going to be one outcome. If you're active and proactive, it's going to be maybe a different outcome. And therefore, we should activate people and mobilize people. So I'm totally with you on that. And, and I applaud you for, for, for yeah. doing this with your clients. And I know you've had to pay the price a couple of times too, by the way. You mentioned in the book. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the doors are shut. <laughs> the doors are shut. You're not invited anymore. Um, people stand up. Uh, I, I, I think I shared the story about um, there's a time I was in Alberta and I spoke to 800 farmers, massive conference. I love speaking to, to people in the agricultural world. It's really fantastic. And I did this keynote is talking about climate change and warming and, you know, it, talking about more extreme weather conditions and talking about automation, a whole bunch of different things. Fundamentally, things that are going to change their industry. Um, and, and I never talk about weather with a farmer. I just don't do that anymore, but, uh, but, but I do talk about climate and it's an easier conversation today because we're seeing things change so drastically and we're seeing, you know, failures to hit targets like on a yearly basis now, but this guy stood up and he was like, everything that you just said was bullshit. And I was like, Whoa, 800 people. Right. So I'm looking out on the stage. I was like, Oh, why? Well, some of this data here and that data there and this, and you're saying that, and I don't believe, I said, well, you're kind of right. I've considered this very carefully. And, and you know, I've, I've really sat down and I've tried to, and then he, he just started to unravel like all of the tropes of like, well, you didn't talk about nuclear energy. And I said, well, I don't particularly find it to be a safe form of energy. And it's like, and gets people's ruffled up and you start to talk about automation that gets people ruffled up, start to talk about global warming, the amount of farmers that hate Greta Thunberg for standing up uh, to, to the system, I can't even begin to, to, to count the, the number of times. Every time I go to a conference, and it's like you're scared of a 19-year-old young woman that's standing up to rights and calling out people that aren't doing anything. You're afraid of that. Like what, there, there, there's a deeper... There's a deeper journey within yourself when we when we talk about that. But yeah, you do. And you find this and suddenly you've got all these people chuckling and the memes start flying at you and all these mad sort of graphs of climate change that, you know, and and strange conspiracy theories hit you on Twitter. And that was that was the tough moment that I, I seem to mention earlier where I sort of switched from welcome to the future to, you know, let's shift our mindset from what is to what if. And, it, and I could have shut the guy down. It's like, you know, what if the world changed? After that, after the Q&A, and there were some really good questions as well. I went down, I met the guy, and I said, give me your email. I'm going to send you, send me your questions. And I sent him lots of reference points. I said, this is about analysis. This is the broad perspective I have. After about an email or two backwards, nothing, just gone, disappeared. Didn't want to engage, didn't want to change his mind and whatever. Um, but then what's really interesting, Nick, later on, I, I had a, uh, an interview and a podcast with Real Agriculture, and I was chatting to Sean Haney and some of the people. And um, that guy was from a wheat growers association. And that year in Alberta, they'd had probably the worst harvest due to floods. Yeah, yeah. And and they were literally like wounded wounded animals licking yeah. their wounds, looking at someone to tell tell them that the world's going to get better by implementing all of yeah. these new changes. Yeah. And mean, meanwhile, you know their businesses are almost going bankrupt, right? So that's that's a really important lesson in this it's situation yeah. as well. So it, it's tough, but like even these companies that we see as maybe legacy companies, what with the energy or or food or whatever that that are going to have to change. 
there are dynamics within them that you have to uncover. You have to have those conversations. You have to understand. One of the things that, that you make kind of clear here, I think, at least indirectly, if not directly, is that you, you really have a couple of, you know, sort of a, a attitudes towards the future. And one is like, okay, I can choose to fight to retain the past or bring back the past. And that's really yeah. kind of an uphill battle. Uh, and the further yeah. away you go from the present into the future, the, the more uphill and tougher it will be to re restrain any change from happening because change is always a constant, right, in any system. Uh, and, and so the, the better choice is, okay, what's the kind of change I'm willing to uh, embrace how could I shift yeah. the present change towards that kind of change? And how could I learn to benefit rather than being hurt from it and maybe reposition myself in a way that benefits me rather than destroys me, right? So so those are the really yeah. the kinds of choices that we have. have. And, and I think uh, that, that stands true for us as individuals and also, uh, and professionals, uh, but also collectively, as corporations, as organizations, and even at the sort of a civilization level. Um, so, so Nick, let me ask you uh, here, you, you also finish, uh, you have very detailed kind of a framework that has almost, I think, 10 mm. steps, if I remember. Uh, and That's and right. the first eight steps were kind of the more traditional approach. And, and the last two steps were kind of like yeah. the icing on the cake in a way, if you will. Uh, and they were called um, backcasting and futures consciousness. Yeah. Talk to me yeah. a little bit more about understanding what is backcasting first, and and yeah. secondly, what is futures consciousness. Yeah. So so uh, the backcasting piece is sort of steps nine and ten of the framework I've got laid out, which is the backcasting strategic planning. Because I I truly believe that you know we can do this exploration of futures, but it can't just live is this exploration it's going to have some indications that the things are going to change so you sort of you, you use a process of backcasting where you start to look at a number of different scenarios and you start to understand you know at those future states the people the process the governance the solutions the programs the projects that, that will probably play out but then you start stepping backwards to think about what needs to come before that future state and you might choose a number of horizons closer to where you are today. Then you can start to see, okay, once you do that, and, it, and this is probably the toughest part of the futures work because you're trying to meld like foresight and futures exploration with strategic rigor, right? And maybe some of that forecasting as well. And you're trying to just literally, what, what I tell my clients is, you're just trying to get some evidence that the world is going to be different, but evidence that you can act upon, right? So, for example, in energy, you know that renewable energy is going to be dominant in, in 30 years' time. So how do we step back from where we are today and, and what are the steps between then and where we are today and how can we make better decisions today and start to plan out you know, those f next five to ten years? So if I'm speaking to engineers, I perhaps should call it reverse engineering yeah. from the future, what you call backcasting. Well, exactly. You're reverse engineering, but what you're what you're doing is that you're then trying to use sort of what's a fairly uh, traditional approach of of sort of strategic road mapping, 
um, but in, in a reverse sense. It, this was the most tricky chapter to try and capture, you know, and, and to sort of explain what we need to do. And I've sort of lent on some really big, big thinkers in this area. But when we do go back and we start to see, even if it's really simple ideas about big questions that we have, you know, at five-year increments, that can be incredibly powerful, right? And we're starting to see that a lot of companies uh, are starting to talk about futures in, you know, their, their annual reports and whatever. So if you do futures work and you've got that, and then you've got a company that has redefined what their legacy is going to be from like 50, 100 years in, into the future um, back on today, then it, it gets really interesting, right? You know, shareholders get excited and whatever. Elon Musk is kind of one of those guys that, uh, you know, we, with Tesla as an energy company and solar and and then SpaceX as a commercial rocket company. He was talking about that a good 10, 20, even 19 years ahead of when things were starting to happen and you were like, whoa, landing rockets, for example. It's like, it's, and no one else was doing it. And it, it took a perspective. Uh, and then all he did was, right, we need to do that. How do you work your way back? It's the same with futures, whether it's agriculture, whether it's, you know, a, a company that, that operates in software um, or, you know, consumer engagement or content, you know, the metaverse, Nick, you know, it's like the, these interesting things. It's like, where do we go back? In fact, Mark Zuckerberg and the whole meta rebrand and metaverse idea is that he's done futures work to say speculatively, we're going to be living in this online, offline, you know, world and all the videos are fancy. It's great speculative fiction. But all the shareholders are, are sort of balking at the idea that he's saying, you know what, it's going to be 10, 15 years of hard work and nonstop investment to even get close to that idea. And everyone's like getting all scared because suddenly they're not going to get a, a return on their investment in the next, you know, 1.3 years, right? <laughs> and this is it. So it's kind of really, really interesting. So there's a little bit of backcasting going on there. Um, but yeah, it's really tricky backcasting. But then back to strategic planning, because simply we've got a goal. There are objectives that help us reach that goal. There are strategies that feed into the objectives. And we measure the, the tactical executions that go underneath them. And we measure everything and we progress forward. But like great for 6, 12, 18, 36 months. We can't do that with futures work. But what we can do is say the next 36 months, we, we're going to achieve X, Y, and Z with a with an eye on 20 years time, this bigger idea about what we're going to achieve and knowing that in 10 years time, we need to maybe hit these bigger goals that that have sort of helped help us rethink how we you know, establish our you know, infrastructure or our strategic planning or you know, the way that we message around what our business does, right? So um, yeah, it gets really esoteric. It's, again, it was a really tough part of the book to, to write. But that's what I try and work with with clients. And it's probably the longest part of the process. Like when you sit down, you know, I, I worked with a, a, a city in North America just before Christmas. It's like, well, what do we do now? It's like, well, we take this and we use them as reference points. It's like, okay, it's like the futures work doesn't stop. <laughs> we, we haven't finished the futures work. In fact, you know, looking at say pedestrianized streets and automated vehicles we, we've explored it but our research hasn't stopped so we need to start considering policies and effects and we need to continue that work as well so it's really important to continue the futures work continue to strategic planning but the back casting is that thread between them that suddenly provides some useful reference points coming back all right nick so that was back casting but what about 
futures yeah. consciousness. That's, I think, the last chapter of your book. So why is that? What is it? And why is that important? So when we start, I mean, it's simple to say shifting a mindset to, to wonder what if and to be curious. But I think that when you're starting to think about building a capability in a business, you have to have people thinking the right way. You have to have people very aware of a situation. And uh, I looked to some researchers that came up with you know, a fairly extensive list of what makes someone that is conscious about our futures, right? And I've, I've just got it here, right? So everything from like uh, self-growth and and the, the skill and love of thinking and multiple modes of understanding, um, expansive temporal consciousness, it gets very deep, uh, deep purpose and tenacity, create, creativity and the adventuresome spirit. It's kind of, again, it gets quite spiritual in a way, Nick, to, to come back to ignite our imaginations, to be conscious and to be, you know, have purpose in what we do on a daily basis, but also have a level of self-awareness, self-control and responsibility, not only to yourself, but to your community, to your company uh, and to the people that you serve as well. And a level of balance and temperance, you know, to, to really work out, you know, what we're doing is important. Well, what we were doing, we might just be providing the best cheeseburger in, in New York City, right? It, it could be as simple as that. But to have a company that's got a level of consciousness around it and, and a slightly bigger picture of, of what comes next is is as important as just undertaking special futures projects or whatever. It's it's like when people talk about innovation. Innovation doesn't live in innovation rooms with innovation teams. It lives in the the heart and drive of every single person in the organization, right? And where someone can come up with an idea that is literally a million dollar idea. With futures, it's about people really seeking out something bigger than themselves and what the company is doing today and really believing that as an individual they've got a role and as a as an as a part of an organization and the dynamics that they play within that that they've got a, a role as well yeah for me what i took from that chapter to put it in one sentence and sum it up is that futures consciousness is understanding that imagination is our superpower we touched upon that yeah and and that breaks down if you have that kind of imagination as a superpower, it breaks down any wall, uh, you know. So that's that's what I took most out out of that. And, and of course, you go into a lot more into into it, but that's what I took down. And I think that's that's a very powerful takeaway. So Nick, we've been talking yeah. now for a for a long time here, uh, and unfortunately, we have to be, bring our conversation to a close. Let me ask you sure. the traditional two last questions that I always ask of my guest. First one is, where sure. can people find more uh, about you and your work? I, I, I'm all over the internet. So you can type in Nicholas Badminton. You'll find me on, on YouTube and LinkedIn and a little bit on Twitter these days, though. Not not as much. Um, I, I run futurist.com and the think tank there. You can find me there. You can also find me at nicholasbadminton.com. Uh, you can buy the book Facing Our Futures from good independent book booksellers first. And if you uh, really want to, you can buy it from Amazon as well. So, you know, I'm everywhere and I try and connect with people as much as I can. And if you're listening to this podcast, don't be afraid to email me like nicholas at futurist.com or link with me in, in, in LinkedIn. I like to have conversations about more than just booking me for a talk or doing doing a gig. I like to hear new new ideas from people out there or 
you know, jump on phone calls with people that are doing industrial design at university that want to discuss agricultural futures. I just did that with someone from Chicago earlier this week, or people that are creatives that are suddenly trying to expand their own mind. So the doors open. And I think that that's really important. So futurist.com, nicholasbadminton.com. You can Google my name. So Nicholas Futurist, Nicholas Badminton. What's the final message? What's the the one thing that you want people to take away from our conversation here today? We can have hope, but that hope is nothing without imagination. And we also need to realize that nostalgia is the greatest threat to good good futures thinking. So we need to somewhat shake off our history and look towards the towards the horizons with with love and hope and positivity. And we need to not be afraid to understand that some bad things may may come and to explore what they look like so we can prepare for them as well. Wow. Nostalgia is the great threat to our future's thinking. Nick Badminton, thank you so much for being <laughs> with us here today. Thanks, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.